First you told us only through you could we know God And if we dared to question, he wouldn't spare the rod For you we worked the soil, for you we dug the moors For you we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars Now you try to tell us there's nothing we can do You say the world around us belongs fairly to the few But about six billion people no doubt will agree This world is our home not your property, it's the commons, our right of birth. And you who would enclose the land all around the earth, our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain. You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain. With our sweat we built the railroads, built cities on these shores, but because you own the money, you see that it's all yours We laid the phone lines and the pipelines And then right before our eyes You see these things are taxes paid for You now will privatize Privatize the hospitals Privatize the schools Privatize the prisons For all those who break your rules And preparing for the day When all the wells run dry You say you own the very rain That falls down from the sky But it's the commons Our right of birth you who'd own the water all around the earth Our future is your downfall when you cut this ball and shame You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain You claim to own the harvest with your terminator seeds You claim to own the genomes of every animal that breeds You claim to own our culture and the music that we play And with each song that we download To your coffers we must pay You'd even own my name And you'd say it's for the best Maybe you'll let us on your radio If our songs can pass your test You own country, you own western You say you've given us a choice You may own the airwaves But you'll never own my voice It's the commons, our right of birth The opinions expressed on corporations and democracy are those of our guests and the hosts, and not necessarily the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Good afternoon and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for May 13th, 2021. This is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. Today's program will be in two sections. In the second half hour of the program, we will discuss, will there be a referendum on Mendocino County's upcoming ordinance to expand legal cannabis cultivation? And that will be with Helen Drell, the co-founder of the Willits Environmental Center and a proponent of uh, repeal of the proposed ordinance. In the first half hour, we'll be discussing who is behind the voter suppression bills in numerous states some of which have recently become law. Our guest for the first half hour is David Armiak. He's the research director of the Center for Media and Democracy in Madison, Wisconsin. David has conducted extensive investigations on dark money, corporate corruption, and right-wing networks, often by analyzing hundreds of public records requests every year. He has a strong research interest in social movements and political power, has a degree in philosophy and one in anthropology from Boston University and a master's in anthropology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So, let's have a look at who is behind the voter suppression bills being pushed in the numerous state legislatures. David Armiak, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Thanks for having me. Good to be here today. 
We really do appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I've, I've taken a look at all the things you've written recently, and it's really awesome. So um, that's really good for our li lucky listeners to have you on to talk about something that everybody's talking about right now, which is voter suppression. It seems to be going on all over the country in all these different states. Um, after voting rights were expanded last November, uh, and there was all this chaos from the corona cor coronavirus pandemic. Uh, so you've been looking at that and um, publishing results for people. What are you finding out? Yeah, um, you're, you're very correct. Uh, so there was, you know, a bunch of state governmental actions uh, to expand um, you know, access to voting, whether it be, you know, um, voting ballot boxes that people could drop off their absentee ballots to or increasing the time uh, by which they could return their ballots um, or mailing ballots out to folks. Um, and that resulted in a massive increase in turnout in the November election. And uh, Republicans in general have not been happy about that. Uh, and so have pushed um, voter suppression bills um, across the states uh, since January when the legislative sessions in the states have uh, opened. Um, and the Brennan Center, which is the you know, close ally of the Center for Media and Democracy, has done great analysis of, of these bills and where they're popping up. And, you know, their most recent tally shows that there's been, you know, more than 361 bills with restrictive provisions uh, introduced in 47 states. Um, the states that have seen the largest number of restrictive bills are in Texas, where there's been 49 Georgia, where there are 25, um, and Arizona, uh, where there's 23. Um, Georgia, of course, you know, was the first to, to draw a lot of attention. Perhaps your, your listeners, uh, you know, were following this story, um, you know, because after the massive voter suppression package passed there, uh, there was uh, some corporate backlash, right? Um, the MLB All-Star game was moved, um, Coca-Cola and Delta, I believe, and, and some other corporations, you know, tried to, um, you know, pressure these lawmakers um, to reconsider, you know, what they haven't done, but the, the damage had already been done, and the Republicans um, essentially doubled down and said they wouldn't, you know, be intimidated. And let me, let me slip in, and that was in March, I believe, and then so that backlash has occurred just in the last few months since then. Yes, correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting, just as a side, uh, how much of this is just being done right out in the open. It's not, nothing covert about it. It's just right in your face that they're trying to prevent people from voting. Um, what, are, what are some of the, um, the mechanisms that are being used to keep people from voting? Right. I mean, they're, they're doing it under the guise of the phrase voter integrity. Oh. Right. So if you see anything you know, about voter integrity, what they really mean is voter suppression. Um, and the types of things that are, you know, we're seeing in these bills are, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, they're taking aim at absentee voting and mail-in voting, um, which, again, the right blames for the increase in turnout. So, you know, they might be trying to decrease the number of uh, days um, that absentee voting can occur or restrict the way mail-in voting, you know, um, happens. Um, for example, you know, applications not being able to be mailed out or, um, you know, you know, things having requiring voter ID or some sort of very restrictive um, forms of voter ID to get an absentee or mail-in voting or, you know, restricting the, you know, who can get, uh, even apply for an absentee um, ballot or a mail-in ballot, right? Mm -hmm. um, some states didn't have voter ID uh, laws on the books or had looser voter ID laws on the books. So, 
Um, some of these uh, states are, you know, strengthening their voter ID laws. Um, in other words, making, you know, more qualifications or exempting, you know, previous forms of IDs. Um, they're shifting power from localities um, to the legislatures. So trying to have more uh, power over the election process in the state houses and not, you know, in cities or in counties. Um, voter roll purges we're seeing, um, you know, um, what, what do I mean by that? I mean, um, removing of voters from the voter rolls. So if they haven't voted recently, um, they will remove the names and force people to re-register. Um, this is particularly a problem in states that do not have same-day voter registration. So if you thought you were registered and then you go to vote that day, you would be, you know, unable to vote. Um, restricting early voting in general. Um, has been, you know, also a major goal uh, of a lot of these laws. Yeah, in addition to integrity and in voting, I believe I actually heard purity in voting the other day. <laughs> um, so, right. so are there, like, battleground states like we usually have now between the, the Republicans and Democrats, ones that are really close and, and very tight struggle? Do we have battleground states here with the voters' restrictions? Um... I mean, well, there's battleground states in the sense, like, uh, you know, we, we, we've sort of characterized them and looked at them, you know, for our pieces are the one, the battleground states for, you know, the presidential elections, you know. So I'm thinking, like, in terms of, you know, which states were close and, and led to, um, you know, Biden um, being elected, right? So states like Arizona, right, Wisconsin, um, you know, for example, mm -hmm. um, which, uh, you know, and um, Wisconsin has seen some of these bills here, but... Um, I'll tell you, the, the governor is a Democrat and doesn't seem interested at all in, in uh, taking or in, in signing any of them and will likely veto them if he, they make them to his desk. Um, Arizona has a large number of bills, and it's a uh, Republican trifecta, meaning, you know, they have, they have complete Republican control. Um, so a lot of these things, um, you know, will likely, you know, pass there. And I believe uh, a voter purge bill has already been signed um, by Governor Ducey um, over there in Arizona. I should bet you, yeah, they just passed one just days ago, I think it was. And yeah. that was, let's see, I have an article here. This was oh, dated two days ago. Arizona just became the latest state to approve male voting restrictions. And here's what to know. That was in uh, Time magazine. Yeah, and it was a lot of people, right? They purged 140,000 voters for, from from the permanent list to get mail-in ballots. That's You're right. And yeah, I mean, and also, right, what's going on there, um, uh, you know, is, is, which is very concerning and has been in the news is this uh, Arizona Senate vote audit. Um, so the Senate there, you know, um, you know, and some of these uh, senators were, you know, spotted at the insurrection on June or January 6th, excuse me, um, you know, at the Capitol, which is, you know, now, uh, you know, is infamous. Uh, you know, he tied to, to Trump and, and many Republicans. Um, you know, they, they're not giving up on Trump's big lie. And they have, you know, conducted their own or are conducting um, a vote audit uh, with a private firm. Um, and the, the federal government has expressed frustration and, and concern with the way that it's being done. Um, but in any case, they continue to push on with this. And it's unclear exactly what, you know, might come from it, um, given that, you know, or given, you know, the ties to the Trump uh, administration or the Trump effort to um, overturn the election. Did I hear you just say that some of the state elected uh, representatives were at the Capitol on the 6th of January? 
Yes, correct. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I didn't, I didn't you know. One in, one in particular, Mark Fincham, uh-huh. um, who's an ALEC uh, legislator. Uh-huh. Um, was spotted there, and um, you know, folks have uh, pressured to get um, you know um, information from his uh, travel there, mm-hmm. and uh, he has refused to give that information through uh, open records requests, um, and and even went so far as to lawyer up and say, you know, um, to plead, you know, you know, kind of plead the fifth and say, you know, I can't, I can't hand this stuff over. Um, and, but even more concerning is um, Fincham appears to be positioning to take over as Secretary of State, um, which would, would mean he would be in charge of elections uh, there in Arizona or be in the lead. Uh, for the midterm, um, something very concerning, mm-hmm. um, you know, consider, you know, with his uh, ties to Trump and his, uh, you know, appearance at the insurrection. Yeah, uh, Arizona is just like really a poster child for all of this. I couldn't really believe my eyes when I was reading that they were examining ballots for traces of bamboo in the paper. Cause that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because that would yeah, mean... Yeah, thinking that they were somehow fabricated or, or, or in slipped China. In, slipped in, or yeah, slipped in like by that, the Chinese right? somehow, yeah. Yeah, that'd be, that would mean yeah. they're from China, right? And, and, and if there's panda fur there, I guess it would be... Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of conspiracy theories on the right that, you know, that the... You know, COVID was produced by China, right, in laboratories and weaponized, and you know, and China is responsible for the pandemic, and um, and that they're the ones, you know, trying to sow chaos in the world in America, blah blah blah, right? Um, so, you know, sort of follow the logic, right, if there's any logic to be had in there, um, that they would be looking for bamboo fibers mm-hmm. and trying to hold China responsible for Trump losing. Well, you mentioned Alec just a minute ago. So uh, tell us more about what you found about uh, who's behind this stuff. Yeah, sure. So um, ALEC, or the American Legislative Exchange Council, is a huge focus of the Center for Media and Democracy and has been so, um, you know, since we received a large, um, you know, uh, batch of model legislation. Um, I guess it's been like eight eight years ago now. Um, And we, you know, what they do is they put together bills, um, cookie-cutter bills, um, with the state blank and the lawmaker's name blank, and they circulate these bills um, now mostly through the Internet, but before they would do so at um, meetings that they hold a couple times a year. Um, And these meetings not only invite uh, lawmakers, but a lot of corporate lobbyists. Um, and they divide the, the meetings into task force meetings, which focus on particular issues like regulations, tax, um, you know, energy, you know, um, the environment, education, really any, any kind of public policy that affects society, right? Um, and in these task force meetings, they bring up these bills or these policy ideas, and they vote on them. Um, to, re- to adopt them or not, and they vote as equal. So the corporate lobbyists uh, receive an equal vote as the lawmakers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, these are closed meetings, usually at really fancy resorts, four- or five-star resorts. Um, there's, you know, free cigar smoking sessions. Um, there's golf and, you know, all kinds of, you know, spas and all this stuff going on as well, free meals. Um, but, you know, it, it's very concerning because media is not allowed to have access um, to these meetings, and neither is the public. Um, so the constituents of these folks are not given, you know, the same access. So Alec, right, has produced, you know, literally hundreds, if not more, right, and possibly in the thousands of these model um, legislations, right? Um, but Alec's role here 
um, seems to be um, in, in partnership with um, the Republicans and uh, the Heritage uh, Foundation's Action Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a report that literally just dropped a few hours ago in, in Mother Jones, um, which shows that Heritage Action for America, which we already knew um, had uh, dedicated $24 million to, in a plan to push new voting registration or restrictions in, the, in eight states, sorry. Um, you know, but that this Heritage uh, Action has um, produced model legislation on you know, voter suppression. And so they're, they're the ones that are really behind this. And there's a guy uh, um, by the name of Hans von Spasowski, who uh, was a former FEC uh, commissioner um, who works on voter fraud or so-called voter fraud um, for Heritage and has done so for many years. Uh, and he, you know, is, is really behind this effort. So Alec is, is kind of serving a role as, in, in terms of connecting um, you know, uh, you know, lawmakers that are members of its organization or associated with its organization to heritage to to be exposed to these bills. Mm-hmm. Um, we also reported, um, you know, that Rand Paul, you know, in a in a <coughs> live stream that he was doing together with um, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is an affiliate of the right wing state policy network, mm-hmm. um, that he, you know, in this uh, presentation, he was uh, mentioned that he had been speaking to legislators. Um, through Alec, um, you know, in working on voter suppression with these lawmakers uh, since the November 2020 uh, election. Wow, that's amazing. So there's a lot of powerful organizations and um, obviously a lot of powerful people behind it. Do you have, have any idea? Tw- 24 million, you mentioned, is going into this program. Yeah, at least. At, at least, least right? That, that's um, just from one organization. Only, yeah. yeah, right. That's what's been reported on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no, there's no requirement um, in terms of like, I, you know, Heritage Action is you know a, non, a registered nonprofit, mm-hmm. so it would file you know IRS filings just like other nonprofits. But there's no requirement um, from the federal government to disclose how much money um, is coming from certain individuals mm-hmm. for certain projects. So. And even if it is, if it were a, a requirement, we wouldn't find out for a couple of years. Um, so, and then it also does not include the money being spent by um, state policy network, um, state affiliates to promote these um, ideas, um, which many of them are doing, uh, or what Alec is doing. Right. Um, so they all are kind of working together here. Um, and I should say that they share a lot of the same funders. Um, so, you know, private foundations on the right um, with, you know, close to a billion or more than a billion dollars in um, net assets, um, you know, d- donate to all these groups. Um, listeners, we're speaking with David Armiak. He's the research director at the Center for Media and Democracy. If you'd like to get in on the uh, conversation, the number here is 895-2448. You've just uh, written an article. That we've gotten some of the information from you. How Rand Paul is working with Alec to suppress the vote. And you talk about this whole suppression checklist that uh, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky has. Do you want to talk a, talk a little bit about some of the things that he's up to here? Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, one of the things he mentioned, right, um, in that talk was, uh, you know, suppre- in particular, suppressing the vote was, uh, you know, absentee voting needs to be, quote, individualized, unquote. Um, you know, uh, linking, you know, or, you know, repeating Trump's, you know, big lie claims that absentee voting, you know, leads to fraud. Um, because, you know, third ballot, uh, or third party, sorry, 
people can, or three-party organizations could collect absentee ballots. Um, they use this term ballot harvesting or vote harvesting. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I guess what they think is that they could take these and then change the votes somehow. Although there's not much, if any, evidence that this is, you know, actually happening or occurring. Um, also, he says, right, that there needs to be more state control over local electoral policy, something that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Paul takes a very hard line saying that, you know, legislatures have the authority um, and should push, you know, legislation, you know, to prevent local and county um, election officials, you know, from altering or changing election protocols in the future. And he says not only should they state what they can do, but state what, specifically what they cannot do, um, which I think is, you know, um, pretty concerning. Um, and he says that that's because that's why, um, you know, Trump and Republicans and, you know, folks on the right lost a lot of these uh, Supreme Court or the Supreme Court case um, and a lot of the cases in the states trying mm -hmm. to challenge the election results. Um, is that because he blames it on the fact that the laws were not clear enough? Mm -hmm. um, and, he, and he, you know, he also says that uh, there needs to be more authority. Um, from state legislatures over governors and secretary of state. Um, you know, and I mean, this is, you know, again, you know, related to the fact that they were not happy with, you know, um, governor actions um, and secretary of state actions uh, in the 2020 uh, general election, which were mainly due, um, you know, to the pandemic, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, people were concerned. You know, people did not want to show up at the polls. A lot of people did not feel safe, right, exposing themselves. Um, to COVID or potentially exposing themselves to COVID. So, you know, our elected officials, you know, responded to their constituents and created, you know, safe ways to vote. Um, and the Republicans, you know, you know, were not as scared or, or were not, um, you know, as worried about, uh, you know, COVID and, um, you know, are, are unhappy with the way that they did that. So they want to make sure that they're unable to do that again. Um, and we've seen, you know, a lot of bills um, pass, which has sought to limit the powers of governors during emergencies. Um, you know, and that, you know, that this is a story that hasn't been as widely reported, um, but really should be. Um, but in Republican legislatures, um, and uh, they have really um, sought to do this, um, where they have trifectas, they've done this, and where they haven't, then they've used the court. Um, to, to try to challenge the powers and get, um, you know, a court precedent or legal precedent to, to limit um, emergency powers in the future. So now that we're all thoroughly terrified, are there any states where voting rights are being expanded? Um, yeah, so, um, you know, it's always good to, to mention some positives. So, yeah, <laughs> um, the Brennan Center also does uh, track this. Um, and they've seen they've found um, 843 bills um, in their last tally with expansive provisions, um, and this is in 47 states. And you know, more than a third of these bills um, expand or address you know absentee voting. Um, if more than a fifth, uh, you know, seek to ease you know voter registration or make it easier to register to vote. Um, there's a lot of states that are focusing on expanding access to early voting. Um, and, you know, we're seeing some uh, restoring voting rights to people with past convictions, right? Because there's some states that, that it had laws on the books that said you couldn't vote if you were a felon or, or something to that effect. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there, there is some of this uh, expansion going on. And then I guess uh, the cure is supposed to be H.R. 1, or also in the Senate. Uh, 
How is, oh, we have a call. Let's take one call here, and then I'll get back to that. Hi. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Hi, Annie. Uh, so I have a question that's related uh, to your discussion, although not exactly. You know, one thing that I've never quite understood is it just always seemed to me that it would be such a low-hanging fruit and hard to argue against making Election Day a national holiday. You know, it just seems crazy that it's not. Is, it, uh, is there any action in that regard, and is there any hope for that, and would it help? And uh, you know, in terms of positive, I guess it has to be a national thing rather than a state thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the issue. But anyway, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about you know, you know, if that's ever been put forward, and if there's any hope for that. It seems like it would help a lot in terms of opening up voter uh, registration, you mm-hmm. know, voting to more people. And um, anyway, that's my question, and I'll get off of you. Okay, off thank, thanks for that. Sure. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Do you have a comment? Um, sure, yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I would totally agree. I, I lived um, for many years in South Korea, and election days are always holidays there, and they do a middle of the week. Um, mm-hmm. So they do it on a Wednesday. Uh, so it makes it harder for people to take, you know, three-day weekends or four-day weekends or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but um, it really increases um, voter turnout, right? Um, and I think it would be a wonderful fix um, for, for many of our issues here in the States, and it's a great idea. Um, unfortunately, there just doesn't seem to be, seem to be enough support um, in the Senate or in the House um, for, for such a, a policy change. Um, and I, I believe it's been introduced in the past, but I can't, you know, refer to any specific bill. Okay, so we're almost out of time. I do want to let you talk a little bit about the Center for Media and Democracy, but maybe first one one quickie about the For the People Act, and is that where the salvation for the Democrats lies? <laughs> um, it, it, it might be, but it's going to be a difficult <laughs> a difficult path uh, to pass it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we, you know, there, yeah, there's a lot of great, um, you know, voter protections. Um, again, you know, probably don't have enough time to talk about all of them. Um, but you know, it's, it's really a great bill. A lot of wonderful things in there, um, around voting elections, um, you know, disclosure, campaign financing, these types of things, um, pass the house. Um, doesn't look like it's going to be easy to pass uh, in the Senate without, um, you know, um, getting rid of the filibuster. And um, unfortunately, the the senator from West Virginia uh, doesn't seem to really be on board with that. Um, you know, Joe Manchin. So uh, yeah, I don't I don't really know what's going to happen, but it doesn't seem likely to pass at this point. Um, but who knows? Uh, you know, if, if there's enough public pressure, things might change. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much, as David. Armiak, A-R-M-I-A-K. I recommend that you look for that on the Internet and find out a lot of the really interesting articles that you've done on a variety of different problems that we citizens face these days. So thank you so much. And, and uh, PRWatch.org, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, we have two blogs. We have uh, PRWatch.org and ExposedByCMD.org. We also maintain um, a couple wikis, SourceWatch.org and alecexposed.org, which you can find everything Alec, um, which I introduced before. Uh-huh. And really uh, appreciate you having me on the show today. Thank you so much. Super. Our pleasure to have you. All right. Take care. Mm, yeah, thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, so we're going to go to part two. You want to tease people about part two, and well, then I'll sure, call we're gonna our be, guests. We're going to be talking about the, uh, the possibility 
of a referendum campaign coming up uh, sometime soon regarding the uh, draft bill, currently still draft form, at the county for expanding cannabis grows. Okay, so stay tuned for that. Let's have a little bit of Thomas Ganong, a local musician, to chill us while we wait for this next more exciting topic. the second half hour of today's program we'll look at will there be a referendum on mendocino county's upcoming ordinance to expand legal cannabis cultivation the board of supervisors is expected to pass a new ordinance for growing cannabis in the next several weeks certainly before the end of june the draft ordinance is still being developed by the board and the planning commission and it has been in the local news a lot lately in, in recent weeks. The, uh, the details of the draft ordinance have been covered by other programs here on KZYX and in the local press, for those of you that, that follow the print press and the online press. However, the possibility of a referendum campaign by which a simple majority of the voters are able to overturn an ordinance that is passed by the supervisors has not been covered in the news. So here on Corporations and Democracy, we are always interested in direct democracy and hence our interest in this issue. With us for this half hour of the program is Ellen Drell. She's well known in the county as one of the co-founders of the Willits Environmental Center and also currently one of a, a group that is considering a referendum campaign for the Cannabis Cultivation Expansion Ordinance. And uh, this would be the first referendum in my experience in the county uh, if it happens, although many listeners are familiar with initiative campaigns that have occurred in the county. Uh, Measure H, back in March of 2004, that was the initiative by which Mendocino County voted to become the first county in the U.S. to make uh, illegal the growing of genetically modified organisms. We were in the national news about that at the time. 
And since then, there's been a few others, including the initiative uh, about was it nine or ten years ago that asked voters to make Mendocino County a charter county. But that initiative was not passed by the voters. So, But initiatives are the direct democracy means for passing laws, uh, not overturning laws like referendums are. So let's look at uh, will there be a referendum on Mendocino County's upcoming ordinance to expand cannabis cultivation. Ellen Drell, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Thank you, Steve and Annie. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by clarifying, well, what the heck exactly is a referendum, since uh, I don't know that it's been used in the last generation or more here in the county. So can you tell us a little bit about what a referendum really is? Yes, I can tell you a little bit about it, and I also want to let people know that um, I've learned about referendums in the last two weeks. <laughs> so, uh, so it's definitely uh, an example of, of citizen democracy, and all of us are on a, a fast and steep learning curve, and it's, it's very interesting. Um, the difference between an initiative, which is a law written by citizens, that then gets put on the ballot and voted by the people, as opposed to a law written by our elected officials. Uh, a referendum is is a call for the repeal of a law that has been adopted by our elected officials, but the citizens don't like it. So a referendum is a tool that we can use to get rid of that law. So that's what we're um, gearing up to do here, because we imagine that the Board of Supervisors will, in fact, as Steve said, pass this cannabis expansion ordinance sometime in the next few weeks, and and we are organizing the county to... Um, have a referendum to oppose the the um, to repeal the passage of that law. Mm-hmm. The other the thing about a, a referendum that makes it kind of dicey and exciting is that um, normally when a law is passed, there's a 30 day period before it actually becomes implemented. So uh, in a in a referendum campaign, the the campaigners have. 30 days to gather the requisite number of signatures of registered voters to put the referendum on a ballot. And if you can make that 30-day deadline, then it basically puts the the, the brakes on um, the implementation of that law until the people have a chance to vote on it. Mm -hmm. My understanding is it's it's 30 days to get enough signatures um, filed with the county uh, for them to examine for accuracy and uh, viability, uh, which would then qualify in a, a referendum for an upcoming some upcoming election. Right, um, but so so the citizens obviously need to be ready to hit the streets within 24 hours after the passage of an ordinance because uh, you know the requisite number of signatures is is uh, 10 percent of the voters in the last gubernatorial election, which which in our case is going to be in the neighborhood of, um, you know, 3,500 votes and uh, 3,500 signatures, but we'll, we'll be needing to get more than that. So, so you know, you, we have to be prepared to, to, to uh, roll into action um, as soon as the supervisors basically vote on this issue. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a lot of organizing even before we know exactly what the supervisors are going to do. But we are anticipating. They've shown every sign that the majority are are planning to support this um, 
this expansion ordinance despite the outcry of the public so so we are gearing up now to be ready to hit the streets as soon as that uh, adoption takes place okay, and so. the supervisors are under a deadline of their own i gather well it's definitely a deadline of their own making and it's uh <laughs> it's it the deadline is that the, the state legislature uh in their own um "Quote unquote infinite wisdom uh, allowed for um, counties to pass ordinances, certain kinds of ordinances having to do with cannabis activities, without doing a countywide environmental review of the of the possible impacts of that ordinance." Um, and and they created a loophole which closes at the moment closes on June thirtieth. So the supervisors are uh, scrambling to take advantage of this loophole, which is one of the major reasons why a lot of people are opposing this ordinance. No matter what it says, to pass an ordinance of this significance without looking at the possible impacts or even for the supervisors to want to pass an ordinance without taking the time to look at, one, what's going on right now, and two, what would be the potential additional impacts of passing this ordinance is so reckless that that is reason enough for citizens to band together and demand that their supervisors stop. And I suppose uh, the drought is something that's uh, making people frantic. You bet. The drought is making, I mean, it's, it's put everybody on edge. And with the approaching uh, fire season, it's got to be the, the, the scariest one, certainly, that I've ever experienced. And I'm sure that people who have lived here for a long, long time have ever experienced it. You know, we're, we're staring it in the face. And the fact that the supervisors are, are contemplating expanding remote rural development and and non-essential agricultural development when wells are going dry and streams are drying up is just i, I mean it's beyond belief mm-hmm. you you have to you have to wonder what what world are they living in so this referendum fortunately we have this tool as citizens to kind of smack them over the head with a 2 by 4 and say hey do you, do you realize what's going on? We don't want this expansion. It's not. It's a terrible time, and to do it, to rush forward to do it uh, in a time slot where you're not required to look at the environmental impacts, it just makes it even more egregious. So, um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of momentum behind this this likely referendum, and we're trying to trying to be in touch with each other and get organized and be ready to go. I mean, it's a shame in a way. Uh, well, it's not a shame. It's, it's good. It's, a, it's good that we have this tool, and if that's what it takes to wake up the supervisors, we're ready to, to, to use this, this tool that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to timing for a moment. So we talked about a uh, deadline that the board is likely shooting for, which is June 30th, but they would likely pass this at some point uh, before then. Um, there, I'm just got the latest information is just an hour ago. I have on that, and that is uh-huh. that um, uh, there is no meeting scheduled for next week, but there is a special meeting scheduled for Monday, May 24th, and then a regular meeting of the board on Tuesday, the 25th. And so. I believe a few weeks ago they had a Monday meeting, and it was dedicated to this issue. 
So it is possible, certainly, you know, you'd be on the lookout, anybody would be, for mm. the, uh, the publication of agenda for that Monday meeting. And that would occur next Wednesday, somewhere late in the day, but, but next Wednesday, I believe. Right. Well, that's interesting, Steve, because the last that I heard was that the board at their at their most recent meeting consensed. I didn't listen to that meeting, but I understand that they consensed on taking this issue up at a special meeting on Wednesday, June 2nd. But it's possible that they've reconsidered. Um, and and so we need to we need to be on our toes yep, and so certainly be prepared, be prepared to uh, look at the the agenda for mm-hmm. Monday the twenty fourth or Tuesday the twenty fifth. You know, I you know it's one of the frustrating things, uh, many 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 frustrating things about trying to uh, participate in an open, transparent democracy. But one of them is our county uh, takes full advantage of what is allowed in the Open Meeting Act, and they only they post the agenda 72 hours before the meeting. Mm-hmm. And in, since our board meets on Tuesday, usually that means Thursday at 5 o'clock in the afternoon they mm-hmm. post the agenda. And if you call the clerk of the board sometime before that, uh, often hem and haw, and they won't, they won't commit to what's on the agenda and just tell you to look on Thursday. So you look on Thursday night to see what's on the agenda, and uh, and so you've got Friday and the weekend and Monday to do any preparation to in order to participate in that meeting and to to get to do any organizing around an issue that you might care about, and uh, which is bad enough for the citizens. But even more shocking is that often the supervisors themselves don't know what's going to be on the agenda until Thursday night, the Tuesday before their meeting. Mm-hmm. So that, and, and you know, there's no requirement that the county wait that long to post an agenda. They could post it a lot earlier. Uh, so I think waiting to the last minute like that, I don't, I don't know if because they don't have the staff to put it together sooner or they're not organized enough or they just prefer secrecy. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, it makes, it makes public participation Difficult, and it contributes to to boardroom confusion too, when they have so little time to to confer with with uh, their own constituents, for that matter, on mm-hmm. an issue of concern to their constituents. So, so there are many improvements we could make at this mm-hmm. in this county, and and that's one of them. But. That's um, perhaps a, a digression <laughs> from our main topic. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, back to timing for a moment. So uh, th- uh, this may occur uh, on the 24th, 25th. It may occur on June 2nd. It could uh, occur after that. Uh, uh-huh. But at that time, once it's passed, then that begins a, a 30-day window again. And uh-huh. that is a, a, the deadline after 30 days is uh, by when petitions must be uh, submitted to the county elections office, and then they have a certain window of time to count them and verify that there's enough accurate signatures, valid signatures, to qualify for an election. And that's this 10% number of the overall votes in the last, uh, last gubernatorial election. Yes. Okay, and that, yes. and that I believe that is, uh, uh, I think it's 30 days, uh, 30, ca- um, 30 business days, Business which, days, which turned out to be about yes. about six weeks. So sometime in late July, you know, perhaps is when the uh, they would be validated, 
And then the there is, I believe, almost a 90-day window. I think it's 88-day window for an election. So it looks like it could uh, an election could actually happen in November, consolidated with the gubernatorial recall, if that qualifies, which is, I think, uh, these uh, signatures are being validated at this time. Mm-hmm. So that's the time frame of when to when an election could possibly uh, happen. And could you tell us then who has the ball right now? Where is the draft ordinance? Who has it? Uh, I think the Planning Commission reviewed it a week ago. It was also Thursday a week ago. And then it went where? Or do they still have it there in the Planning Department? The Planning Commission made their recommendations on May 6th. And then it went to the Planning Department, who will write up those recommendations. I don't think those those recommendations are... are I'm, um, we looked yesterday to see if they had been written up and posted as a, sort of an addendum to the Planning Commission meeting, but couldn't find anything. So, uh, I mean, one could listen to the Planning Commission meeting to get an idea of what the recommendations were, but they, they basically are, I don't think, in written form yet, and so are sitting in the Planning Department. Mm-hmm. But they, will, they won't show up until... Um, I mean, I'm assuming we won't be able to see the final recommendations of the Planning Commission to the Board of Supervisors until that 72-day period prior to the meeting where the supervisors take this issue up. Mm-hmm. You should remind people that we're talking about an issue here of a probable expansion of uh, cannabis growing areas to 10% of what it now is, uh, above what it now is, and that this is very controversial. And we're talking to Ellen Drell with the Willis Environmental Center. And so in response to the likelihood that this is going to pass, this expansion of grows is going to pass, people are putting together uh, the idea of a a referendum to to take care of that problem if it passes, and there may even be more than one referendum, right? cut it off at the pass, Uh yeah, Uh definitely. We will have time for for several calls here, so if you'd like to get in on the conversation and uh, ask anything of our guest, uh, the number here is 895-2448 here in the studio. Feel free to give us a call here. Um, if we don't have a call right now, I just want to say, Steve, that first, the the first effort will be to get the requisite signatures. So mm-hmm. that'll be a thirty day um, intensive effort of people out on the stream the street with these um, petitions for people to sign, and then, and the second step of the process will be the campaign because actually I'm not exactly sure how it, how it would appear on the ballot but that, but basically voters will have the option of whether or not to repeal this this proposed this ordinance mm-hmm. that will have been passed at that point or to keep it so that will be the campaign so there's first getting it uh, having uh, you know getting it on the ballot and then there's the campaign so we do have a just, call just like an initiative we have a call hi call you're on the oh, air hi um many thanks to ellen drill and to both of you your program um for bringing this up and um before the show's over be please be sure to say where how and where people can sign the petition thank you very much thank you so where good thank you <laughs> <laughs> when and where yeah. Ellen? <laughs> well it's not it's not a draft or i mean it is a well it's not even a draft ordinance i mean there's been various versions of it so it's it's not a deal yet and so there's not formally a referendum yet i mean even a you know the, the uh petitions yet is but, that I, right? but i imagine but, people could contact the WEC. We can, we, 
we can certainly tell people, I mean, we, you know, we're looking, the more people who um, will volunteer to gather signatures, the easier it will be on all of us, and the faster it'll happen, and the sooner we can get them verified. So if you're ready to sign a petition, uh, or even get a petition yourself and circulate it, um, you know, you, you can take as, as many petitions as you think you can handle, but, uh, but any help you can offer in that way at this point would be great. So, so definitely, Steve, I think you've got the contact information. Um, I do, and the, I'll mention that. The website, and let's, let's Let's give that out yeah, right let's, now. Let's mention that and, and mention again for any other callers. It's 895-2448 here in the studio. And the uh, contact information for uh, further information or where you can sign uh, when that time comes and all. Uh, uh, two places. They both lead to Kate Marionchild, who is a resident of Inland Mendocino County in the, uh, just outside Ukiah. That's katemarionchild.com is the web address. And that's Marionchild with two A's, M-A-R-I-A-N. C-H-I-L-D, Kate, K-A-T-E, so katemarionchild.com, and then there is a contact link at the bottom of the page, and that will lead you to where uh, there's a, just a form to submit uh, any questions you have or uh, mention you want to volunteer and help, and wh- whatever you like. And you can also call the number that is also on that page. The phone number there is area code 707-621-5013. Again, 621 621- Five zero, one three, and you'll give those again at the end. Mm-hmm. I gather. Um, one thing you were talking about has it's going to be intensive to get three five hundred signatures, and that's true. It will be, but um, maybe I should give you a chance to show off a little uh, all the number of letters to the supervisors that you've generated over this issue. Uh, right. It's it's. In my experience, Annie, and I don't know about you and Steve, but the numbers of the hundreds of letters that have been sent both to the Board of Supervisors and to the Planning Commissioners, in my experience, is unprecedented. I mean, we used to cheer if we could get 40 or 60 people to actually submit letters on, on an issue of concern. And I mean, that was a lot. That was good. 50, 50 letters, you know, 50 people in the boardroom. But... Um, a month or so ago when this first really got rolling and was in front of the planning commission there were over 300 letters sent to the planning commission totally i'm just way beyond my experience ever and yet the planning commission proceeded in their meeting as if nothing had happened and then uh and then so we geared up even more and managed to get 400 letters to the board of supervisors when the board of supervisors took up the recommendations of the planning commission it's been like i say in my experience an unprecedented outcry from the public and the vast majority of these comments are don't do this stop i mean there were lots of reasons but the basic message was we don't want this and the fact that the board has um you know they've done some as we like to say rearranging of the deck chairs on the titanic as has the planning commission they have not grappled with the central issues of why this is so unpopular with the public and i don't know if it's these the situation of covid the fact that people can't actually come to the boardroom and look look their elected official in the in the eyes and speak their piece if that's i i mean i can't help but believe that's contributing to the to the difficulty here but um but yes an outpouring a real outpouring of outrage um against this proposed ordinance what are some of the um the 
arguments that you hear in favor of it? The arguments in favor, um, uh, well, there's the obvious, uh, the obvious one. There are a handful of people in the county who are in this industry who want to get big, and they want to get really big, and they do not like the limitations of our existing ordinance. Uh, and then there is, uh, there are smaller growers who were willing to live with our existing ordinance, which was passed in 2017. And uh, I mean, it's 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 fun. It's basically sound, but it it needs some improvement, and it's been. Um, and it's been ignored and sabotaged, but the, the existing ordinance has pretty just strict limitations on it. No, no bigger than a quarter of an acre and no new growth in the wide areas, uh, rangeland areas of the county. Mm-hmm. Those are the two major limitations. And, but but the, the growers who were willing to live with those limitations and actually step forward, and some of them tried to get permits, have had their permits dumped in a file and lost and messed with, and uh, the county doesn't communicate with them and doesn't let them know what's needed, doesn't, hmm. I, you know, it's a whole other topic. But basically have allowed the, the, per, the, the people wanting to come forward and get a permit languish until they're now threatened by not getting a state license because they don't have their local license together. Those people hmm. have been promised that with this new ordinance, they'll be able to, to get through and get their state license. That's that's a whole nother subject. Well, whole I other think subject, it's yeah. it's a manufactured uh, a manufactured threat and, and some of these small growers are being held hostage under mm-hmm. that threat. Okay. Let me mention but, once once again eight nine five two four four eight if anyone else wants to get in. Go ahead. We only have four minutes left. Yeah. So um, but but beyond that, um, I don't hear a lot of support for this proposal. I mean, people people cannot understand why the supervisors would want to expand in the face of drought, water shortages, fire season, and especially the fact that there has been virtually no enforcement of the existing ordinance, and illegal grows are mushrooming in the third district in particular. So without any evidence that, that legal growing can be enforced and illegal growing can be eliminated, uh, despite that reality that a lot of people are living with, uh, the supervisors are planning to expand the program. It's, it's I, you know, people are outraged. So we're just about out of time. We're going to repeat those. Though. Here's a call. Well, we'll squeeze in one more call. Hi, you're on the air. Uh, yes, hi. I just uh, wanted to call and uh, thank your guest today. Uh, very lucid and uh, really surprising information. And I wonder if she could just speak to what was the impetus uh, if the supervisors you're saying what I heard in your last comments really didn't have a great argument other than the few big growers in the region want to get bigger and the small growers are held hostage. What was the impetus in the middle of all the chaos of the first two phases of ordinance to then add this into it for a 10% increase. What was the original impetus? I'll take my answer off my Thank you so very much. Thank you. I'll, I'll, the impetus, as, as far as we can tell, was the opportunity to make more revenues for the county by bigger, bigger grow operations. Um, it seems to be money. And there are some on the board who um, feel that that's the highest and best thing to aim for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of complicated, but you know, you you think of 
you know, of course, Annie and Steve talk about the influence of money in politics all the time, and I think we're seeing a pretty raw, stark example of it here in the county. There are um, local growers who want to get really big and outside growers that do, and they want to take advantage of Mendocino County's reputation as a place for high-quality, fine cannabis. And it's about money. Okay, money. All right, so let's give out the contact information one more time. Okay, one more time. A Kate. website, katemarionchild.com. Again, katemarionchild.com. That's two A's in the Marion. And there's a contact link at the bottom of the page, and you'll see it there, and then you can fill out a form and submit it. The phone number to call there is also on the page, 707-621-5013. Again, 621 621- Five zero one three, and the Willits Environmental Center is at. Da, 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 da. You have that four five nine four one one zero. Okay, best, best way to get a hold of us. Okay, we have thirty seconds. So, Helen, thank you very much, and thank you to the callers. And I'm sure this issue will get more attention in the future, both the content-wise, which uh, we realized yeah. today, but the uh, political issue of a, of a referendum campaign. So, thanks for being yeah. our guest. Thank you, Steve and Annie, for having me. Yes, thank you so much. Really appreciate all your information. And this has been Corporations and Democracy, broadcast on second Tuesdays, 3 to 4 p.m. here on KZYX and Z. And we'll be back on Thursday, June 10th. This has been a production of KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.